If you are a sermon text watcher, and yeah, kind of like bird watchers, you know, you've probably got in the margin the date and my name beside this text. But this is a new sermon. Right, there's more to be said about Romans 8.28 than could be said in one sermon. It's not a rerun, just wanted to tell you that so you wouldn't turn me off right at the beginning. You probably could quote this uh, verse, you'd probably quote it from the King James translation, but listen as I, as I quote it. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To them who love, to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. I suppose that this, as well as John 3.16, are the most quoted scriptures of all. No scripture more committed to memory than these two verses of scripture. And we have quoted them, and we have uh, claimed them, uh, and, and believed them for, for years. There is nothing um, that is more rich than a study of the promises of God. To come to the New Testament and, and claim these promises that are in the New Testament. And the book of Hebrews says that if you are a child of God, you can claim the promises God has made to the Jews. And so you have all those Old Testament promises. No less than eight to 9,000 promises to which you and I can lay claim. And that's why it's so important to us to know the promises of God so that when the Holy Spirit prompts our heart or our mind to, to claim a promise, then we can claim that promise as a promise God has made to us personally. There is nothing richer than a study of the promises of God. But there is a danger in studying the promises of God, a kind of a subtle danger, it's this that we're, we're in danger of so focusing on the promise that we get our eyes off the person who made the promise valid in the first place. That is always a subtle danger in any kind of theological exercise. For example, I think that sometimes we become so enamored with spiritual gifts that we get our eyes so focused on the spiritual gift that we forget the giver of the gift. And so we must never so focus on the promise that we forget about the fact that there is a person behind the promise that makes it valid. For our hope should never rest on mere words alone, but on the promise made by the promiser. The promise is as good only as the one who makes it. Now, I want to break this great promise open and notice the great truths that are there. First of all, the premise of the promise is this, all things work together for good. Now that does not say that everything that happens in your life is good. Has anything ever happened to you that is bad? Of course, there are things that happen to you that are bad. And what you do not need when something bad happens to you is some guy to come and 
throw a little religious jargon out at you and say, well, now that really is a good experience. You're just not seeing it from the right perspective. If you really saw that from the right perspective, you'd know that that was something good that was happening to you. What you don't need is somebody to tell you that. Because not everything that happens to you is good. Because not everything that happens to you comes directly from God. Now the Jews had a problem with that. The Old Testament Jew in his jealousy to guard the sovereignty of God made everything that happened in life directly attributable to God. In his desire to show that God is sovereign, he had to declare then that everything that happened came directly from God. Not everything that happens to you is good. Not everything that happens to you comes directly from God. But the premise of this promise is that this experience over here that may be distressing, when it's mixed with all the other experiences of life, the end result will be good. Have you ever made anything, a cake, maybe a cake from scratch? My mother used to make this marvelous chocolate cake from scratch. Now what that means is, for all of us who grew up in the cake box era, it means that she started out here without a cake, without a, you know, without a box cake. And that's something to behold, you know. But she had her, you know, she had a little bowl of eggs over here, all stirred up raw eggs. And she'd have a bowl of chocolate here and, you know, a little bit of baking soda here and some flour. All the ingredients of that cake from scratch. Now, not one of those ingredients singularly, not one ingredient apart, is, was really good. I mean, I don't get turned on, you know, by raw eggs. And, and I'm not really turned on by, you know, a teaspoon of baking soda. But when you mix all that together, those ingredients together, put a little milk there, it makes this delicious batter. And some of the most violent sibling wars I ever engaged in... What we're, we're fighting over that, you know, who's going to get to lick the bowl, we called it. Now, that means we didn't literally lick the bowl, but, you know, to eat the batter before it went into the baking pan. And because it was just, you know, delicious batter when it's all mixed together. Now, when you take life and the experiences of life individually or separately, they're not good, some of them. But when you mix them together, the text says, the end result is good. And there is an Old Testament illustration. In fact, there are many of them. My favorite is in the life of Jacob. The name of Jacob means deceive, deceiver, supplanter. He was a trickster. He got tricked, which proves the old adage that what goes around comes around. And you know the story of his life. He had these sons, this favorite son, Joseph, was sold by his brothers down into captivity. That He thought he was dead. There in captivity, he became second in command and saved the nation in the time of famine. You know the story from your childhood education. And one day, Jacob sent his other sons down to Egypt to you know, get food in the famine, and they didn't recognize their brother down there as the chief minister, prime minister of the country. He recognized them and he had this little plot. He kept Simeon there and said, I want you to go back and get my brother, ben get Benjamin, this boy, your brother, and bring him, the baby of the family. And when they went back and broke this news to, to the trickster, to Jacob, this is what he said. Now you talk about summing up a man's life. This is how he summed it up in the 42nd chapter. He said, you have bereaved me of my family. 
Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin from me. And the last phrase underlined, all these things are against me. Does that sound like anything, anybody you know? Does it feel like that sometimes, that all the things in life are just against you? Little did he know that God was going to take these all things and put them in his blender of providence and the end result was good so that the things that were against him would be the things that were for him. The things that were against him would be the very things that would bless him. All things work together for good. That's the premise. There is, however, the, the person that is behind the premise or the person that is behind the promise. Now, if you have a King James translation, it translates that all things work together for good. But the New American Standard translation makes this thing work and does it right, does it best when it says, God makes all things work together for good. And there's a tremendous difference there. Because when we understand that God makes all things work together for good, it takes life out of the realm of chance and luck and moves it over into the realm of the direct planning of God. And we understand that back there in the shadows behind the scenes sometimes is a God who is making these things work together for good. One day Jesus came to the pool in Bethesda and he saw a man lying there, been, been there 38 years, and he healed him. Now the problem with that was that he healed him on the Sabbath day. And the folks kind of got up in arms against Jesus because he healed him on the Sabbath. And Jesus started talking to them about God, about the Father. And they said, paraphrase, typical translation, God wouldn't do this on the Sabbath. And Jesus' response was this tremendous insight into an understanding of God. This is what he said. He said, my Father is working until now. And when he said that, he exploded for all time the idea that God created the universe and then has sat down to watch it run down. And what he was saying there is that back behind the universe is this creative redemptive God still at work. Now what do we know about the God of creation? Well the creationists and the evolutionists do not agree on much but they agree on one thing. That this creation we have is a creation that starts over here and moves in progression to a progressive result. The, cre the, the, the evolutionists believe that just the creation moves toward a purposeful result or a, a, a progressive result the creationists believe that God moves creation toward a progressive result, that He begins over here and He moves His creation and is still doing it to a progressive result over here. What Jesus was saying is this, that the creative God is still at work in His creation and what He is doing is that He starts over here with your life and He moves that life into all of its events to over here in a progressive, purposeful manner to a purposeful result. He is at work to make all things work together for good. You see, we don't live in a universe where, where, you know, where there's just you know, luck or chance. 
You don't just toss your life to the wind and hope that the pieces of the puzzle will somehow filter down and fall down in some meaningful picture. We believe that God takes the pieces of life and fits them into a meaningful picture. I was doing a little shopping at the supermarket the other day and there were two ladies in front of me checking out and they were, in com- they were talking, this true story. One of them said, have you been out to play bingo yet? And, and the other answer said, no, the last time I played bingo was at a Baptist Sunday school party. No, she didn't say that. I'll take it back. It didn't say that. She said, she said yes, she said, I did. And she said, you know, I got within one number of the jackpot. Let it be my number. And I can just see that lady sitting out there. I haven't been there, but I can just see her sitting out there, you know, and these lights are flashing or these balls are bubbling up or whatever happens out there. And she's saying, oh, let it be my number. Let it be. And then somebody beats her. Now, there's some people who say, you know, I just can't believe that there is, a lie, there is a God behind life guiding it toward a purposeful result. I just have a hard time believing it. Listen, folks, I have a hard time not believing that. I have a harder time believing that life is a matter of chance and that somehow, hopefully, if we keep our fingers crossed, our number will come up. Have you memorized Proverbs 16.33? You need to memorize that verse. This is what it says. The die is cast into the lap. It's the dice. The die is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Now let me paraphrase that verse. The paraphrase of that verse is, you may flip the coin, but God decides whether it's going to be heads or tails. You may flip the coin, but God decides whether it's going to be heads or tails because behind life is this purposeful, creative God making all things work together for good. That leads us to the person to whom that promise is made. Now this is where the water hits the wheel and the rubber meets the road. There are two characteristics of people who can lay claim to that promise. Those who love God and those who are called That involves the great doctrine of election and predestination. Those who are called according to His purpose. Now, listen to me carefully and watch this. Those who love God. Now, if you love God, it is not because you're something special or righteous or good. If you love God, it is because why? Say it with me. God first loved you. If you love God... It's because God loved you first. Before there was a hand reaching up to God, there was God's hand reaching down to man. Before man ever called to God, God called to man. Before you ever moved one movement toward God, God searched and sought for you because salvation is a grace initiative. God called you. Now, the reason why He called you is because He loved you. Now, you find me one person, if you have a problem with election or predestination, you find me the one person that God has not loved, and that will be the person God has not called. For God calls those He loves, 
And if he loves you, he calls you. And if he loves you, you love him. Because it says that we love him because he first loved us. Now, there are two impossible things, and I want you to write these down. You don't need to get anything else. Well, yeah, you do, but this is the most important thing. Two things, impossible things. The first impossible thing is this. You cannot, be, you cannot love God and not be called. If you love God, you're, going, you're called. You cannot love God and not be called. Now, you say, well, I don't know if I really love God or not. How do I know that I love God? I sometimes don't even know if I love my sweetheart. How do I know I love God? Well, Jesus gave us a little help in that. He said this, listen, He said, He that has my commandments and keeps them, He it is that loves me. Now, that does not mean that you keep every commandment of the Lord and never break one. The word keep means to keep a watchful eye on, and it's a nautical term. It's like a sailor who sails his vessel, keeping his eye on the star, and he guides his vessel on the basis of that nautical nautical term, that nautical idea. He's keeping his eye on the star. It's like a person taking off on a trip, and he has his map in in the front seat, and he keeps his eye on the map or upon the signs that the map designates. And and Jesus said that if you govern your life, if you live your life, keeping your eye on my commands, and that's the way you live, that means you love me. And if you love God, you're called. Secondly, second impossible thing, is that you cannot be called and not love God. Listen, listen to me carefully. If you do not love God in that and we try to identify what that means. If you do not love God, you're not saved. Now you can be baptized, you can join the church, you can be Christian, you can do all that kind of thing, but you cannot be called if you do not love God. Now to this people, to this group, to those who love God and are the called, this is His promise that everything in life works together for good. That leads us finally to the last thought, please. And the most important, perhaps, the practice of the promise. Now, it's interesting where this promise is placed in this, past, in this chapter, one of the greatest chapters in the New Testament. This promise is placed right where three theological truths revolve. In fact, it is a hub around which Three great theological truths revolve. And what Paul is saying is this, and watch this. He's saying, first of all, that you can practice this promise in the area of your prayer life. And he says in verse 26 and 27, he said, We don't know what to pray, how to pray. We don't know what to pray for. We're ignorant when we come to pray. But he said, Don't worry about it. Because the Holy Spirit will make intercession for you with groanings that cannot be uttered. In other words, he's saying you can claim that all things work together for good. In the area of your prayer life, you can claim that God will take the prayers you pray amiss and work them for your good. Now watch carefully. I think sometimes that we quote some things just because it sounds good. And it really doesn't have theological basis. I'm guilty of that, so I'm going to ask your apology. And one of the things that I've often said, and I'm not really sure that it's that accurate, is this. Be careful what you pray for 
because you might get it. Now, I know when we say that, we probably mean that sometimes we beg and ask God for things that we really don't need, and one of these days God's just going to say, okay, you can have it, so, you know, and we're in trouble. I know that that's what we mean when we say that, but the danger of that is that it would frighten us with regard to praying at all. You see, for what if I ask for something and I get it? And it's the worst thing that I could ask for. You know what that'd do to me? That'd scare me to death about praying. And Paul says that you can pray about everything. In fact, you can tell God everything you want. And I believe that when a person loves the Lord and he's walking with the Father, he's walking in the Spirit, that he can pray anything, he can tell God anything he wants to tell him. He can ask for anything. And even if it is wrong, God will work that for his good. You believe that? I believe that. I heard a guy say one time, he said, well, there was this couple that they, had, they needed $10,000 to save the mortgage on their farm. And so they were praying one night, Lord, give us $10,000 so we won't lose our farm. And about two or three months later, a few weeks later, they, their, their son was killed in the war. And then shortly after that, this guy came with a check from the government, the insurance on their son, the government, $10,000. And this preacher said, be careful what you pray for. You might get it. Now, I don't know what you believe, but I'm not about to believe that God killed their son so they could have $10,000 to save their mortgage or to answer their prayer and give them what they wanted, even though it was wrong. But what I am going to believe is that God takes these ignorant prayers we pray we're really sincere and we're really trying, you know, walking with the Lord and He takes these ignorant prayers and the Holy Spirit's ministry is to work those prayers to God for good. You can, pray, you can practice this in your prayer life. Secondly, you can practice this in the area of predestination. Now, I'm not going to try to define or explain what predestination means, but I want to give you a, one sentence that... You know, kind of help you get a handle on the definition. Predestination means this, that you cannot thwart the purpose of God for your life. You cannot. Now you can thwart His will, but you cannot thwart the purpose of God for your life. Predestination means that there has been a decision made in eternity past on the basis of God's foreknowledge that can neither be altered nor changed. And what Paul is saying is this. He's saying that with your faith or without your faith, God's going to accomplish His purpose in your life. You can go cooperating with God or you can be His enemy, but His purpose is going to be accomplished in your life. It's kind of like when I was a kid, I used to have terrible problems with tonsillitis. And I had to get all these shots. I hated shots. I'd start getting sick and I'd start begging, you know, for mercy. Don't take me and get a shot. You know, punish me, beat me, you know, put me on the rack, starve me. <laughs> Just don't take me and get me a shot. And, and eventually, you know, it was, to the, it was to the doctor to get a shot. You know, I could go kicking and screaming and usually did. 
or I could go, you know, just smiling and cooperate with my parents. But the end result was I was going to get a shot so I could get well, and I could cooperate with mother and dad, or I could go kicking and screaming, but the end result was their purpose was going to be accomplished. Now listen to me carefully. God's purpose for your life is going to be accomplished whether you cooperate with God in that or not. It's going to be a lot easier if you do. Now this part of the sermon is old because I'm going to use an old illustration. You ever tried to nail something with, with a, without a hammer? We never can find the hammer in our house. So what we use is the heel of a shoe or a, you know, a, you know, a, a butcher knife or screwdriver. And you, you know how hard it is to nail a, a nail in a wall with a screwdriver? You know. <laughs> so my son, true story, he gave me a hammer one year for Christmas. He thought that was the greatest gift he could ever give me. Well, you know, because I never could find a hammer. Now, there is a perfect instrument to nail a nail in the wall, and it's called a hammer. There are other instruments that are not the best, but they'll get the job done. Now, there are some things that are really not the best things God could use to have accomplish His purpose in your life for various reasons, but God's going to use every instrument He can get His hands on to accomplish His purpose in your life, which means that God uses every circumstance in your life to accomplish His purpose. That's the predestined will of God. And the story of Joseph leaps out that truth that God even used the criminality of His brothers, the sin of the brothers of Joseph for the salvation of a nation. That's what the cross means. One last thought. You can practice this in the area of prayer life, in the area of predestination, in the area of your protection. For this eighth chapter says... Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who shall condemn you? I say that this passage says that you are protected against the who's of life. And then he says, What shall separate us from the love of God? Angels or death or principalities? I say this passage protects you against the what's that come against you so that you are secure in this promise from the who's and the what's that would harm you in life. Wow! I used to have this guy that I preached in the Northwest and I preached in a little town called Castle Rock, Washington. And this guy was a light, a long beard. He was saved right out of the hippie subculture. And, and when I, he still smoked pot. He, he didn't know there's anything wrong with it. What, 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 when I'd preach, when I'd say stuff, he'd go, wow, you know, out loud. Cut me off and give me this, because I'm getting terrible popping here. Right at the time when I don't need it. Cut this off and give me this. That's it. You know, and when I, when, I, when I think of that, that God has this protection from us, I want to say, wow, you know, that there's no who and there is no what it can harm me. I can see you're just overwhelmed, you know, with that. A number of years ago, a fire destroyed the laboratory, Thomas Edison's laboratory. And Thomas Edison went walking through that laboratory with a stick, just kind of poking around through the rubbish. 
and he found a little bundle, a little bundle of papers wrapped up and tied tightly with a string. And he, and he, and he opened it up and, and he saw these papers. And in the midst of those papers, this little bundle was a picture. A picture of himself. And he, and, he, and he reached over and he picked up a piece of charcoal and across that picture of himself, he wrote, it didn't touch me. All things work together for good. I, I get to claim that, not, you know, that, that popping. For, I get to claim it. You got my mic turned off, my lavalier? It's got to be this then. or this. Can you, can you listen to me? For the rest of this time, across Romans 8, 28, across the 8th chapter of Romans, these words are written. It can't touch you. For all things work together for good. Would you pray with me? Father, We want to claim that today for this service and for our hearts. And for this moment of decision, we ask for your will and a purpose to be accomplished. In Jesus' name, look here this moment. There are three invitations this morning. The first invitation is for you to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. God's call for you is a call to salvation. He loves you and He calls you. Can you hear Jesus calling you this morning? Saying, come to me, come after me, come follow me. I want you as my child. He loves you and so He calls you. The second invitation is for you to rededicate your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe you can see this morning God's hand at work in your life and you've not cooperated with Him. And it's been a painful experience as God has tried to bring you along. And It's going to be so much easier if you just cooperate with the Lord, be obedient to Him, get His road map and follow it. You want to rededicate your life to that. Or maybe you need to come this morning because you believe that in the plan of God for your life at this point in time, God wants you to be a member of this church. I hope that you'll be responsive to the leadership of God. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.